Today is the third Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of joy. Our joy is in God and in his Son, Jesus Christ. Like peace, joy is a gift from God. It overtakes us and fills us when we remember what God has done and what he has promised to do. We light this candle today to remind us that Christ came and is coming so that all people might have a rich and abundant life. We thank God for the hope he gives us, for the peace he bestows, and for the joy he pours into our hearts. Let us pray. O God of joy, Emmanuel, send your light into our hearts at this time. Help us to be ready for the time of Christ's appearing. Fix our hearts and our minds upon those things you have done. And those things you have promised to do, that we may have the joy that you have promised. 
As we worship you, strengthen us so that we may always do your will and so bless you and the world you have made. Amen. Please stand as we continue in worship.
thank you for the gift of your son. And as we uh, continue in this Advent season, we pray that our hearts will be moment by moment prepared for all that you want to do in us and say to us and work in us. We pray that through this time of worship today, we will know your love and your grace and that we'll be filled with joy. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today.
just a couple of things to remind you uh, on the uh, insert in your bulletin. There's a list of the upcoming services and times. Next Sunday, we start the four-week period of one service at 10 o'clock. So just please uh, make note of that. And you see the Christmas Eve services. Also tonight at 5 o'clock, we're going to come and uh, join in, uh, sort of become a chorus to sing part, some of uh, Handel's Messiah. We'll have music for, for everyone, and uh, we hope you'll join us. It's a great time to celebrate uh, this uh, beautiful piece of uh, music. Also, the co- you're invited to uh, college students, but I'm sure everyone, anyone who wants to go is welcome to go to the um, Absolute today from 2 to 3 and uh, to go caroling. And uh, there's information in the bulletin about that. Uh, there are other things, obviously, happening in the life of the church. And so we, uh, we want you to uh, be aware of those and to know the different ways in which we are participating together as a family of God. We're going to ask the ushers to come now and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings.
please be seated. As we spend time praying together, if you would like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of year when we are reminded especially of the gift you've given us of your Son. We pray, Father, that during this Advent season, as as we think about the the years of waiting, as we think about the, the years of yearning and desiring for the Messiah to come, that you will rekindle within each of us the hope that you bring to us in Christ. We pray, Father, that as we think about the burdens of our lives and the things that weigh us down and the things that bring anxiety to us and concern to us, we pray that you will give hope to us in each circumstance. We pray, Father, that you will give the hope of your comfort to all who are grieving today. We think especially not only of those who have experienced a recent death, but during this holiday time, as the, the impact of a loved one not being with us seems that much more intense We pray for your comforting presence. Father, we pray for your hope and grace upon all who are struggling with health concerns. We pray for Priscilla Waltz and Vesta Mullen, for Tim Nichols and Bruce Brenneman, for Bill Roski and Bevret, for Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Alton Shea, for Isla Shea and Dick Gould and Edna Howard and for Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler and for the many others that may well be on our minds this morning. And we ask for your healing grace in each of them. Father, we continue to pray for your mercy and for a sense of hope for people who are dealing with the most severe circumstances from the Ebola virus. We pray, Father, that you will bring the hope of an end to this crisis and the hope of your comforting presence upon the thousands that are grieving from this terrible disease. Father, we continue to pray for our world, the world around us and the world that is far beyond us. We thank you for what you have done through the years with Royal Family Kids Camp. The lives that have been touched and changed, both with those who have come to work at the camp and for the campers. And as preparations are being made, even now for this next summer's camp, we pray 
for your grace upon the leaders. We pray for your continued mercy upon the campers. And we ask that you will make the camp of 2015 powerful in the lives of children that you deeply love. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Sudan. Churches being demolished, literature confiscated, Christians and Christian workers being deported. Father, we know that we see the work of the evil one, but we know you are greater. And so we pray your power to be evident through your people and in your people and with your people. We pray for our brothers and sisters that you would give them courage and strength and hope in the midst of a situation that feels pretty hopeless. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace upon us. Thank you that you have come in Christ to our world of broken people. We pray that you will once again transform us through your, through your Son, our hope, and the hope of the world. We pray this in His name, through His grace, remembering the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples to pray, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Uh, Immediately following the scripture, children may be dismissed for children's church and junior church. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Please stand and sing with us. Thank you. 
Tears are falling, hearts are breaking. How we need to hear from God. You've been promised, we've been waiting. Welcome, holy child. Welcome, holy child. Hope that you don't mind our manger. How I wish we would have known, but long awaited, holy stranger, make yourself at home, please make yourself at home. Bring your peace into our violence. Souls be filled. Word now breaking, heaven silence. Welcome to our world. Welcome to our world. Fragile fingers sent to heal us. Tender brow prepared for Grayson, and um, we're just going to talk here a second. Let's see. Now, what do you like to play with? Um, trains. Trains. I know you like trains. Do you have lots of trains? Yeah. Yeah? What do you do with them? Um, I get one, two, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten trains. Wow. You do like trains. That's amazing. Do you go to, do you go to school? Yes. Where do you go to school? Preschool, yeah, you go here, don't you? Because I see you at preschool. Mrs. Danner, yes, Mrs. Danner's your teacher, isn't she? That's cool. Do you like to sing? I bet you do. Yeah. You like to play, don't you? Yeah. What if I said to you that I'm standing here holding the Son of God? That's what I thought. (laughs) He's a great kid. 
and we all love him. But to say that this is the son of God is pretty hard for us to grasp with our minds, isn't it? I'll let you go back to dead. Thank you. Do you ever stop and think about that? These little children that are running around the church, that we see in preschool, that you watch here on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, to think that one of them might be the Son of God is incomprehensible. And yet, that's what this whole thing is about. That God took on human flesh and became a little baby, a little child. Just like the ones that we see running around here. You know, the question is, the question that was asked was, is Jesus, was Jesus just like every other baby? And incredibly, the answer is yes. One of the things that we find when you, when you think about the incarnation, is that it says something to us about the otherness of God. And when we think about the otherness of God, we tend to think of the bigness, the greatness of God. And that's certainly a part of it. He is almighty and all-powerful and sovereign and Lord of everything. He is beyond us infinitely. But there is also another side to the otherness of God. That it's not just how big God is, but also that God is willing to become small. Little. Philip Yancey talks about how God becoming little is one of the most incredible things in the world. Because you have nothing like that. Anywhere else in, in deity and in, in, in other ideas of, of what it means to be God. It's all about bigness. And yet, God reveals himself most clearly by becoming small, little. And there's something about the idea of incarnation, about God becoming flesh, that reveals to us what it means for God to be other than us. And what it means for us to understand the nature of God. I mean, for, for one thing, incredibly, as incredible as it sounds, we see in incarnation, Jesus reveals that God is humble. Now, that's a little bit hard for us to hear. We're humble. We're supposed to be humble. And yet, here is this baby, here is God in flesh, in total humility. Humble. John Donne, the poet, talked about Jesus as immensity cloistered in the dear womb. I mean, this, this is what God is willing to do, to become humble. And everything about the, the story of Jesus' birth is, is couched and rooted in humility. 
It's not just that, that Jesus becomes an infant, becomes in, comes into this world as a little baby, and, and angels watch Mary change God's diaper. As incredible as that is even to say that, it, the whole story is, is God's humility. You think about how the angel encounters Mary. The angel doesn't come to Mary and say, look, God has chosen you, and here's what you're going to do. The angel says to Mary, here's the plan. God has chosen you. God has put his finger on you, and here's what God would like to do. And in essence, he says to Mary, what do you think? There's going to be great joy and deep sorrow. People are going to completely misinterpret what has happened with you. People in, around you are going, to, are going to look disparagingly upon you. But are you willing to do it? What do you say, Mary? Are you up for it? Even in the asking, in approaching Mary, there is the spirit of humility, of, not of demand, but of inquiry. And the same is true with Joseph. You know, we just read this passage about how the angel comes to Joseph and in essence says, you know, Joseph is trying to do the right thing and he feels caught between a rock and a hard place. And the angel explains to Joseph what's going on and says, are you up for it? Will you do it? No demands. No, he's not twisting Joseph's arm. He's not, he's not putting the, the heat to him. He's just simply saying, here's the situation. Will you participate? What kind of God does that? Except a God who is willing to be humble. A God who is willing to reveal his otherness to us in a way that is mind-boggling for us to try to grasp. But it's not, it goes beyond even God just being humble. It, there is a sense in which everything about this story is, is about God and, and underdogs. You know, we, in, our, in our American culture, we, we have a tendency to, to love to fight for underdogs. We people who we love it when when we have these success stories of people who have who have nothing and and come up out of nowhere and make a success. You you, you hear a lot about this in, with sports, and uh, right now, in fact, in college basketball, the the University of Kentucky is by far the best basketball team in the country. They're head and shoulders above everybody else. They have the most talent. They they just they they are the team to beat. Without question. And every team that plays them is going to be an underdog. And if any team beats them this year, which people are doubting whether that will happen, but if anyone beats them, it will be why it's why we call them underdogs, because when an underdog wins, we talk about it as a fluke, a miracle, once in a lifetime experience, because no one expects it. But in every game they enter, they are favored. How much more God against anyone? And yet here is Christ coming into this world as an underdog. 
There is nothing about his circumstance that is privilege. Nothing about his circumstances that, that contains any kind of, of, of a sense of him having an advantage over anyone else. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He's born to, at the very least, common parents, if not poor parents. The situation of his birth, the place, all the elements of it don't speak of privilege. They speak of anything but privilege. And everything about Jesus' life is fighting for the underdog, working for the people who have no privilege. When Mary, you know, sings her Magnificat at the after she is at Zachariah and Elizabeth's house, she writes, she sings these words: "He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty." It's all about what God wants to do for the people who have no privilege. And it's not as though he ignores people with privilege or doesn't care about people with privilege. But just realizes that in our world, all the advantages are given to a certain class of people. And you would think that's who God, where God would expend his energy. Let's be honest. That's where we would tend to expend our energy. And yet here is God, here is God in flesh coming, identifying with poor, marginalized, vulnerable people. But, and it's not even just identifying with them, it's taking it on himself. Taking on the role of of the vulnerability and weakness. And we find as the story goes along that ultimately he ends up, it ends up costing him his life. And it's so contrary to how we think about power and how we think about success. Because for us, success would not be a cross or much less even a manger. For us, success would be power. It would be influence. It wouldn't be vulnerability. And yet here is God in flesh being vulnerable completely. And in that vulnerability of God, there is, there is a sense of God being approachable in a way that he hasn't been before. You know, we have a tendency to to believe that the best motivation to get things done is fear. And we do that because, quite frankly, it works, right? I mean, we're afraid of, of getting caught, so we typically don't drive 90 miles an hour in a 40-mile-an-hour speed zone. We're, we're afraid of um, being punished, and so we obey parents and other authority figures. We're afraid of failing, so we study for tests and we turn in our papers. And, and fear is, a, is, a, is something we use as a motivation, motivation because, quite frankly, it works. 
And in most of the religions of the world, fear is what motivates people. We motivate people by making them afraid to not do what they're supposed to do. You see it over and over and over again. And there are a lot of people in our, even in the Christian world, who believe that fear is is a good motivation. But God doesn't seem to feel that way. I mean, yes, he gives warnings, and yes, he, he, he makes it clear that there are consequences. But when it comes down to his most profound means of explaining to us and of revealing himself to us, it, it isn't fear. It isn't putting up barriers. It's removing barriers. He becomes one of us. He takes on every, every element of, of humanity that we live with. You know, the writer of Hebrews talks about how when, that everything that we've experienced, Jesus experiences. He was tempted just as we are tempted. Everything that we go through, he's gone through. Which makes it tough for us to make excuses for God now because we can say, well, you know, Lord, I'm, I know I'm struggling with manipulating people, but you don't understand that. He says, oh, yeah, I do. I'm struggling with materialism and greed, but you have no concept of what that's like to struggle with that. He says, yeah, I do. He understands all of that. All the highs and the lows, he gets it by being among us. You know, I, I picture Jesus working in the carpenter shop and, you know, he smashes his thumb with a hammer just like we do. And it hurts. There isn't this sense of him smashing his thumb and because he is fully God as well as human, it doesn't make any difference. And he makes fringe, deep friendships with people and they turn on him and they hurt him. People he loves die. You know, he, he takes on all that we take on to be approachable, to break down the barriers. You know, when I was in middle school, I had a science teacher, and I'm much more sympathetic now on this side of it than I was then, but I don't know how to describe it. He was crazy. Uh, I mean, You know, this is how many years ago, and I can remember vividly so many instances from middle school science class. I had him for 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. And, I mean, he would yell at us. He would throw things at us. He he would, um, he'd kick kids out of class. I remember one day slamming a kid up against a locker in the hallway. You know, uh, this was, again, 35, well, actually, more years than that uh, ago. Yeah, I don't want to admit that, but... You know, it was a long time ago, and I guess you'd get away with stuff then that you'd maybe not now. But he was crazy, and, and he motivated the, our class through fear. And, and every, every day you walk into that class, you could just, you could sense that this was going, that you were, it was fear. That's what he was wanting to do, and that's how he motivated us, by fear. Contrary to that, my social studies teacher during those three years of middle school did the exact opposite. He was always looking for ways to break down barriers between him and us as a teacher. Now, you know, he had a pretty good firm grip on the class, but we did other things. It wasn't fear that motivated us. It was creativity. So we would, we would uh, do historical reenactments, and we played Jeopardy, 
and we had political debates. And he loved us asking questions. And he encouraged that. And he, he engaged in our lives. And he would ask us about our lives. And it was, it's no wonder that I hated science and I loved social studies. And I suspect that there were, there were some interesting conversations in the faculty lounge. You know, Schmidt, you're letting those kids get way too close to you. You're way too approachable. That's going to come back to burn you. You're, you're, letting them, you're letting them get to know you way too much. You've got to keep the distance. You've got to keep fear. You've got you to make them afraid of you. You're, you're doing this the wrong way. And quite frankly, we probably did take advantage of him. But it was a risk he was willing to take. And so is God. And one of the things that the story of the birth of Christ tells us is that God is the ultimate risk taker. I mean, this whole thing from beginning to end, I mean, God has always been a risk taker. And he takes a risk in, in, in connecting himself with frail human beings, creating us in the first place. And then identifying himself with people like Abraham or the Israelites knowing full well of how they're going to reject him. And, and yet he keeps doing it. And here is this becoming flesh. And you just think of the, the, the physical risks involved in pregnancy. And you think of the physical risks involved with children and all the ways in which they can be hurt and worse. And God, the great risk taker, is willing to allow himself to be vulnerable and misinterpreted. I mean, you think for a minute about having all kinds of power, physical strength. And you could defeat anyone. And yet, here you are, sitting in a chair, tied up, handcuffed, tied up. And, and held there by someone much weaker than you. And how frustrating that must be to know that if you were just free, you could do whatever you wanted to do. And you're there not because you've been forced to, but because you choose to. And everyone's going to look at you sitting there and think, you're weak. You're vulnerable. And everyone looks at Jesus and sees God as weak and vulnerable. It's a risk God is willing to take to be close to us. Because he doesn't create the world to just rule over us. He creates us as human beings for relationship with us. And you can't have relationship out of fear. That's not a real relationship. Sometimes I wonder if the incarnation is a struggle for us to really grasp. Because something in us, despite what we may say sometimes, kind of prefers distance with God. If God's too close to us, 
it kind of feels like he's there every moment and we have to always be watching what we do. But if God is distant from us, then we only really have to think about God when we come to places like this. Or when, the, when we read our Bible or we say a few prayers and then we just go about our lives the rest of them, the, whatever we do throughout the day. And, and God isn't in that close intimacy with us. He is distant from us. And there is a sort of a sense of comfortableness in that. And we don't have to be quite as accountable to God as we do if he's with us all the time. I think that's one of the reasons why we wrestle to really grasp the incarnation and the reality of it. You know, I love the, the Christmas carol, Away in a Manger. It's a beautiful song. But I got to tell you, when we sing that second verse, the cattle lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I don't think so. I mean, if he doesn't cry, it's not a baby, that's a doll. And I think one of the reasons we write words like that and we think like that is because... It's just so hard for us to comprehend God in flesh. God being that real, that human. That's that's why I wanted to bring Grayson up here this morning to see flesh and blood, little child, and to, to, to begin to think that God looked like that. And it's hard for us to really grasp that Because quite frankly, there's something about that distance that we prefer. You probably have heard in one way or another uh, Kierkegaard's story about explain the incarnation. And he talks about how there was a king who was out among his people one day. And he saw this this beautiful woman that he, uh, he, he, his heart just fell in love with her in a moment. And he would, he would visit uh, among the people and surreptitiously look for her and watch her. And every time his heart became more, fell more and more in love with her. And, and he wanted her to, to be his queen and his wife, but he didn't know exactly how to go about it. And he thought, well, he could demand that she do that, show up with soldiers and people. And, and, and he, had, he could do that and say, I'm the king, you're going to be my queen, let's go. But what kind of relationship is that? And he pondered what to do and he thought, well, he could, he could lie to her and tell her that he's just somebody else, and then once she says, okay, I'll, I'll be your wife, then he would say, guess what, I'm the king. But he said, you know, that probably would backfire on him, the duplicity of that. And he realized that the only way he could do it was to actually take off and, and in a sense, renounce his royalty and become a peasant. And he did. And he lived among the people and and. And he built a relationship with her until eventually she came to love him like he loved her. And, and we love that kind of story, but I suspect if the people of the village found out who he really was, it, it would frighten them and it would bother them because that's not what kings do. Kings are supposed to be in palaces and commoners are to live in the streets and be among the people. And it would make, I think it would make them uncomfortable. Earlier this week, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge visited New York City, William and Kate. And, you know, they did all the things that royalty do. 
they had an interview with President Obama. They met with, with the Clintons. They met with Vice President Biden. They went to a professional basketball game, rubbed shoulders with Beyonce and Jay-Z. And, you know, they, they did all those things. And even, even when Kate went to visit a, a preschool in Harlem, you know, there were cameras and security and all these people. And she was there a few minutes and then she left. And every time they entered or exited their car or entered or exited a building... You know, there are people screaming and cheering and swooning over them. I wonder what people would do if out of the blue, William and Kate walk into a Walmart in jeans and sweatshirts, pick up a cart and start going around, you know, with some sinus medicine, get some yogurt, you know, buy a package of paper towels, you know, a couple of boxes of Lucky Charms. You go to the deli and they order a pound and a half of salami and a half a pound of potato salad. And then they get in line and wait for a cashier to, to process their order and check them out. And I wonder, you know, what the guy at the door asked to see their receipt when they leave the store. I think it'd make people feel uncomfortable. We'd probably think, well, it's either a, it's either a, uh, a stunt, they're either stunt doubles or it's some kind of publicity stunt. Because I think it would, it would make us nervous because the whole reason we want to see them, the whole reason people are standing outside their hotel waiting for them is because, not because they're common people, but because they're royalty. I mean, you and I could walk out of the building and big deal. They're royalty. That's what makes the difference. And something inside of us kind of hopes that someday we might have something of what they have. And if you have it, you want everybody to know you have it. You're not trying to be as common as possible. You're trying to be royal. And yet here is God. Common. Vulnerable human and God does all of this for one reason because you and I are sinners God takes on flesh becomes a little baby grows up as a toddler goes to grade school and high school And works in the carpenter shop. And eventually goes to a cross. Because you and I are sinners. The angel tells Matthew. If you're on board with this. When this child is born. Name him Jesus. Because he will save his people. From their sins. That's why he does all of this. Because he wants us to be set free from our sins. It's about God and relationship with you, with me, with everyone. That's why he comes in flesh. It's hard for us to grasp this. It's probably pretty hard for Mary and Joseph to grasp this too. It's one of the things that that I I love about 
what Mark Lowry writes in his song, Mary, Did You Know? And he asks a series of questions. Mary, did, did you know that this was happening? Did you know what was there? Did you know who was there? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered would soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm a storm with his hand. Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the deaf Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day heal the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? This little child you're holding is the great Take a moment to just meditate on God becoming flesh for you and for me.
his name is called stand for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.